Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I want to thank you again for listening. We have a great guest today, Keith Aquat. He is the found, one of the founders and managing director of the Documentary Foundation. Keith hails from Sacramento, California, and uh, he and his best friend started making documentaries on the side and both decided to give up their day jobs and do this full time and it's uh, I just actually recently met Keith in the last uh, couple months and um, just a great guy uh, very enthusiastic doing some cool work and I just really loved his story and wanted to have him on and he's agreed to do that so I'm going to have him on in just a few minutes but before I get to that I wanted to remind you that you can connect with us on Facebook on Twitter um, if you're on Facebook it's facebook.com backslash agents of innovation podcast be sure when you're on Facebook, uh, share the podcast with those of your friends. You are my marketing department, after all, and um, really appreciate you sharing that. We also write a blog post for each of the episodes, which um, I also post on the Facebook page. So check those out and share the blog post. Uh, read that. It's a nice little teaser intro to each um, podcast episode and what uh, our guests are up to. Also, we're on Twitter, and if you're on Twitter, we're at Agent Innovation. Uh, follow us, tweet at us, tweet some questions. Um, happy to tweet with you right away and uh, let us know uh, maybe what you want to see on future episodes and who you want to hear from. Also, um, you can subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher, and I imagine that's how some of you are probably listening to it today. And be sure to grab your friend's iPhones or Androids or whatever devices they have and subscribe them uh, while you're at it. I like to do that. Uh, anyway, um, at the end of this episode, we're going to hear from a familiar musician guest, Steve Everett. Uh, we had Steve on on episode three, and we are going to listen to one of his songs uh, at the end of this episode called West Coast Time, which I think goes well with the uh, upcoming guest we have who hails from California. Well, now on the Agents of Innovation podcast, uh, we have uh, our guest today, Keith Aquat. Keith is the managing director and producer of films uh, for the Documentary Foundation, which can be found at documentaryfoundation.org. Uh, Keith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Francisco. Well, hey, uh, you know, Keith, I just met you uh, recently, a few weeks ago, and we were at a, uh, at a, at a similar conference in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. I know you hail from Sacramento, California. And we've got a, a great mutual friend, Adam Gallette, who's uh, with the Moving Picture Institute. And I've known Adam quite a few years. And, and i got to tell our listeners, here's how I met Keith. I actually met you at a, another reception for about five seconds. We were with some other friends of mine uh, that I used to work with. And then Adam and I were planning to go to this concert, uh, Slash, uh, the former guitar player for Guns N' Roses, who now has his own band. And uh, it was a spectacular concert. And me and Adam were trying to meet down the street. And we're texting each other, and we're at the wrong place. And he says, well, my friend Keith is, uh, is, is supposed to meet me, too. And all of a sudden, I see this other guy like 10 feet away from me texting. <laughs> and I go, wait, are you Keith? 
and, and I just met you like, uh, you know, like, like an hour earlier at a reception uh, by happen chance. So it was kind of funny. But anyway, um, our first experience, Keith, together was seeing Slash. And so uh, I think we bonded over that. But I got to learn a lot more about what you're doing. Um, and I'm just fascinated by your organization, Documentary Foundation. And um, tell me a little bit about what you guys do. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Francisco. It's it's um, it's always great to talk with other people who who appreciate innovation, and um, you know it's 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 the where it's the way we're heading, you know, here in America between that 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 cross section of entrepreneurship and and curiosity and technology. So this is great. Um, and uh, I'll admit I had a little trouble hearing you in your intro because uh, my my eardrums still haven't recovered from that slash concert. Um, but uh, what, what was that you said? <laughs> um, but. Uh, that was a hell of a way to, to, to begin our friendship. Um, so with Documentary Foundation, we produce films for PBS. Uh, we're a 501c3, and we've done three films for national broadcast. Um, our first film was about a, uh, the culture of Mongolia. We uh, spent time with the president. Uh, we um, tracked down nomadic reindeer herders. Um, we did a lot of fun stuff in, in Mongolia and made this great project called Roughing It. And then our second film was about a baseball team in far western China. Um, and that's called Diamond in the Dunes. And our last film was called Age of Champions, about the senior Olympics. We followed a 100-year-old tennis player, an 86-year-old pole vaulter, a team of granny basketball players in their 60s and 70s, and uh, two swimmers, two brothers in their uh, late 80s, early 90s who, um, who, uh, who, who swam for gold. So um, we're working on our fourth film right now, which is a, a little shift in tone. It's, it's about three struggling cities in America. Um, telling stories of families that are making it through their challenging circumstances. And really the film is about, um, about upward mobility and opportunity. And uh, we want to tell positive stories in each of the communities, but also give uh, our viewers a, a glimpse into how difficult um, life can be in, in some, of those, uh, some of those areas. So, so that's what we're doing right now. Um, and in addition to producing films, we also do educational programs. We've taught high school students uh, through our uh, local partners at PBS, um, told, uh, taught high school students how to make documentaries in a program called The Doc School. Um, over 300 of our students graduated, and, and um, over the course of the three the last three years that we've been teaching the program, a couple of whom have gone on with full ride scholarships to, you know, the Tisch School at NYU, to USC, to Chapman. So that's really exciting to be a part of the next generation of innovators. And then um, we're uh, just launching a program. Actually, since we saw each other in Michigan last, uh, we just got the green light from Sundance. We're doing a program called the Creative MBA, and it's all about empowering creatives, um, specifically filmmakers, um, to uh, harness their entrepreneurial spirit and skills and uh, connect directly with their audience for their films and and make a sustainable living as a creative well that's awesome um and congrats on the on the sundance uh that's that's really great news well i um i know that you're a 501c3 nonprofit, and uh, I, I see on your website you guys describe yourselves uh, having character driven uh social uh commentary films and i also noticed um you know you were mentioning to me you started this uh, organization with uh, one of your good longtime friends, um, Christopher Rufo. Uh, and uh, tell me a little bit, uh, Keith, bef- what were you doing before you started this and how did you get in into this uh, uh, organization in this industry? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's a funny thing. We... Um uh, uh, basically, we began as as moonlighters. We were doing films, making films, documentaries for PBS on the side, 
while we were both working full-time paying the bills um, before we could figure out how to make uh, an income as a filmmaker. Um, so when I talk about the creative MBA and talking about sustainable careers and, and, and you know, finding ways to make money with your art, um, these are all battle-tested lessons that we actually you know, did ourselves um, to, to get to where we are. Um, and uh, so uh, I, I actually um, began in college uh, to develop an interest in politics and policy. Um, I um, participated in this, um, I, I guess you just call it like a nerd camp, a libertarian nerd camp in college called Institute for Humane Studies, and it was great. Um, and then uh, from there, I went and worked on the Hill. After graduating from college, worked in D.C. on Capitol Hill for a, for a legislator. Um, and then I worked for a legislator in my hometown in Sacramento, uh, the capital here. And, um, and that was a great experience. And, um, uh, you know, the film that we're working on now is very much kind of about the cross-section of, of public policy, politics, and culture. And so a lot of the things that I learned um, in, in my previous professional life uh, really is applicable here. And same with Chris. So Chris went to Georgetown, and I don't even really know if he cares that I like to tell people the story. It's just too good to, to go untold. But he, he, he's a really smart guy. He went to Georgetown's uh, School of Foreign Service, graduated summa cum laude, and then um, he, his full-time job after graduating, um, and as we began to launch our film careers, was he was a night security guard. And uh, so he, he was uh, protecting and serving, <laughs> and, uh, and, then, you know, and then we were both working on our films at night. And then finally, after about two years of doing it that way and kind of launching our careers, we uh, began eight years ago doing it full time. And um, you know, we found some success, found some good audiences, and uh, we even have retirement accounts now. <laughs> Great. Well, I, it's it's. It's cool because I remember you mentioning the story, and I, I just think it's kind of neat to me. You, you both were doing something else, and then you kind of just started doing something I guess you were passionate about and uh, that just had an interest to you on the side, and then it took off into this whole full-time organization where you've now got, I see, over 5 million viewers have viewed uh, some of your films through PBS and other mediums. Uh, so tell me a little bit, though. Um, what were you uh, guys studying? I mean, you, you mentioned he was uh, doing the Foreign Service, uh, I guess, post-Georgetown. And um, did you guys study film in college? Where did you first pick up the camera? The first film class, filmmaking class that we ever were a part of was one that we taught. Neither of us ever studied it in college. Neither of us had uh, were lucky enough to have high schools that offered the programs in that field. So we actually just kind of learned by doing, and um, you know, we began our filmmaking career uh, uh, from a, through a passion for travel. So our first two films were in exotic places, and Chris and I grew up together, um, loving ex- adventures, and whether it was you know in our backyard or across the world, and and so um, our first films were in Mongolia and in China, and um, it was really that love for travel that brought us there, probably even. You know, a stronger love for that, uh, for adventure than even filmmaking. Filmmaking was the means in which we could travel and have these great adventures. And what we found, um, and it's still true to this day um, in the film we're working on now after doing this for 10 years, um, what we find is filmmaking and storytelling and filming in communities, whether you're in Stockton, California, or in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, you really you push yourself to find extraordinary things because there's nothing worse than filming something that's ordinary or predictable or uninteresting. Um, 
probably the only only worse thing than filming it is having to watch something like that. So <laughs> so we so we really worked. You know what's awesome about what we're doing now? It, it's it's continuing the tradition of what brought us to film, which is um, filmmaking, which is 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 that love for the unknown, for the adventure, and for for a good story. Well, that's awesome. Well, I'm a I'm a huge travel enthusiast myself, and uh, I think the best uh, talent I could lend is 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 my writing talent at times. But uh, I, I guess I'm um, really amazed that you guys didn't have any schooling or any kind of education. Um, did you just go to Mongolia and China and pick up a camera? T- I mean, tell me how you uh, first kind of learned by doing. So, yeah, the first step for that was actually Chris took the first step after graduating from Georgetown. Before he came back to California, he bumped into someone at a grocery store who um, runs conferences abroad. Some I can't even remember the subject matter, something really boring, like UN related. And um, they and so they do these they, they this this guy organized um, youth conferences um, for, for people. And Chris got hired to shoot video for these conferences. I mean, it, it's pretty simple shooting. And, and I think Chris may have em, embellished the experience he had. In fact, I, I know he did. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it, but it was good enough for doing a good job for a couple months, but it gave him some confidence in, 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 in being behind the camera. And it also gave him access to um, the camera that we shot our Mongolia documentary with. So when we went to Mongolia, we actually, Chris was behind the camera shooting and I was in front of the camera, I was actually hosting that documentary. So that's the only documentary we've done that has that hosted format. And so I, I, I was the on, on camera personality. Um, and in fact, um, when we finished, so you're writing, in the film. I'm in the film. I'm, I'm leading our viewers through this experience in Mongolia from everything from slaughtering a sheep with our bare hands to wrestling with a traditional Mongolian wrestler to going to a wedding and drinking fermented horse milk. Um, do, so I, I, I was the on-camera personality struggling through all those strange experiences. And uh, Well, I was um, about to ask you if I could yeah. go on some of these fun adventures with you, but I don't know about that last part. Um, so I, I don't know if I'm that adventurous. Yeah, the horse milk, man, Eric. That's um, that's an acquired taste, to say the least. <laughs> well, um, that must be cool. So, uh, uh, there's got to be another challenge in places like Mongolia and especially China. Um, um, did you register as a filmmaker in these places? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Chris and I are firm believers in asking for forgiveness rather than permission, um, I, especially I think in communist that- countries. Yeah, China especially. And we did have a couple little run-ins where they brought us into the police station and asked questions. Um, but, but, but essentially, we're young. I mean, Chris and I, were both 31 now. And so when we were in Mongolia and in China, we were actually still in our early 20s. And so we basically, people just thought we were students. And our cameras are not huge. You know, we have a small, it's always a small, it's a light, agile crew. It's just Chris and I and one other person typically. And and so we, we really kind of just looked like students. So we could fly under the radar. Um, when, were, when did you film these? I see this is a 2008. So 2008 and uh, through, and, and, and documentaries are long, always take about two years to shoot. So 2008 to 2010 was uh, the China film. And then Mongolia was 2006 to 2007. So you and, guys were what, about 24 or so then? Yeah, yeah, we were just getting started. And um, 
Probably the closest call I had, though, in China was uh, I, typically when we're filming, Chris runs the camera and I run the sound. And so um, when I was going through the airport in Shanghai, um, you know, the sound equipment looks real scary. I mean, there's a lot of cables, right. there's a lot of dials. It's pretty, you know, in the post 9-11 world, you get a lot of attention. And so um, uh, they pulled me aside with the bag, with all my sound equipment, the recorder and the mics and the cables. And they're like, what is this? And, and so I just sort of blurted out, it's DJ equipment. And then, and then I kind of like made a hand signal for like turntables and that kind of thing. And, and that was enough to get me through security. And uh, we were off to start shooting. Great. And then you, uh, so in, in Mongolia, the film is called Roughing It. And then uh, in 2014, uh, uh, you did a film for PBS called Diamond in the Dunes. Uh, takes place in China. Tell us a little bit about that one. So Diamond in the Dunes is about um, this, the sort of very strange society that you find in the far western region of China. The area is called Xinjiang. It borders Pakistan, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, it's out there. And it's in inland China. Most of the cities that we're all familiar with in China are on the far eastern seaboard, Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong. And um, so with, uh, with this remote area of China, um, there's actually a, a, a Muslim, Turkic, Muslim Turkic ethnic group called the Uyghurs. Um, that live out there. And, and your listeners that would recognize that word would probably have heard of them because they are Muslim and there are many that are separatists from the Chinese government and they're seen as terrorists. There actually were even a couple Uyghurs in Guantanamo. And so um, the Uyghurs are this group there that are ethnically, religiously very different from the, 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 the majority Han Chinese. And so... Um, they, though they were kind of the indigenous people in that region of China, China essentially took over the area in the Cultural Revolution um, in the in the 40s and 50s. Um, China, uh, the Chi the Chinese actually have completely segregated the society there. So the Uyghurs and the Chinese, they go to different schools, they go to different restaurants, they and and they even function on different time zones. So China, even though it's about the same size as the United States by some measures. Um, it's, it's got one time zone, Beijing time, um, classic Chinese approach. Oh, wow. Um, but the Uyghurs actually function on their local time, which is three hours different. So, so not only, so it's a very deeply segregated society. So our film is about the only place that we observed where the segregation line was broken. And that was on a university baseball team. So there just weren't enough Uyghurs and there weren't enough Chinese to have separate teams for this university. Um, and so, um, even though they live in different dorms and go to different classrooms, um, they come together on the, on the, uh, the baseball field and play as a United team. And, um, they practice all year for one game. And, uh, the year that we followed them, they actually played one game against a Tibetan team. And, um, I won't spoil it, but, uh, uh I'll, I'll give a little hint, uh, that they didn't do too well, but it was, uh, quite a story. It was quite an experience to be out there, and um, yeah, it was just a great film broadcast nationally on PBS. So tell uh, me, uh, how, I mean, that seems like such a unique story, uh, just out there in you know, sounds like almost a remote area of China, um, or, or an unknown, less known area of China. Uh, probably less. I don't know how many things are remote in China, but uh, uh, anyway, um, how did you find this story? We found this story. Uh, we met a um, a uh, 
guy from Los Angeles on our trip in Mongolia. And he actually shared a um, – he actually joined us for our journey. He wasn't a filmmaker. He wasn't interested in being a part of our project. But he just became our friend. And um, that was Colin Ledgerton. And so Colin joined Chris and I in our journey of Mongolia um, really to just kind of tag along on this weird adventure we were going on in filming. And so um, Colin, as we got to know him, he explained he was a, a, a linguist, a, 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 an aspiring linguist and studying the Uyghur language at Rutgers University. And um, he had actually just gotten back from six months in that far western region of China and um, told us about this baseball team. He's a big baseball fan, and so he actually helped coach the team for a while. And so that's how we learned about it. And that's been the case for all of our films. The subjects, uh, the subjects in which we choose, and, and we do choose all the subjects for our films. We're not dictated what to do. Um, when we choose them, it, they, they come about in a very serendipitous way. Our Senior Olympics film you know, came about in a very kind of happenstance way as well. We were at a conference and sat down next to someone who introduced herself as the CEO of the National Senior Games Association. And, and you know, both Chris and I, our eyes just lit up and we're like, the Senior Olympics? Well, I didn't even know that existed. And, you know, two months later we started filming. So, you know, it kind of just happens that way that we just, we just wait to see what, what stories um, tickle our fans and we go from there. Well, I haven't seen these films, but I've, I've watched some of the clips you've had online and some of the... Uh uh, the, the background you've written on them. Uh, this Age of Champions film about the Senior Olympics just looks uh, like such a fun film. Tell, tell, me, tell us a little more about that one. So uh, the Senior Olympics takes place every two years, in this, and it rotates in which um, city in America it'll take place. And, and um, Where was it are, when you filmed? It was in California. Coincidentally, it made it easy to produce. Um, it was at Stanford University. And... Um, the Senior Olympics brings together about 15,000 athletes who are 50 to 100 plus competing in a myriad of, um, of, of uh, sports from cycling to volleyball to baseball to, you know, pole vaulting. And, um, and, and, you know, it was such a fun film to make, not just because we met some incredible people, but because we were just so thoroughly inspired by the the attitude of these of these seniors who were battling cancer, arthritis, you know, just general wear and tear when you're in your 80s, and but still competing for gold. And um, it's a really wonderful story about about you know not letting um, things stand in your way to achieve your goals. Yeah, and I, I noticed uh, you and um, your colleague Chris were on uh, CNN on uh, with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, you guys did a great interview with him talking about this film and, and I thought it was cool about how you said these guys who, I mean, the hundred year old tennis player who was playing a 94 year old tennis player. And I mean, that's just amazing. And, uh, how they just have something to look forward to in life. It's, uh, that seemed, uh, kind of a neat concept and that, that kind of just keeps them going. Absolutely. I mean, people ask me, I was just at a conference in Washington, D.C. presenting on Age of Champions and, and people asked me, well, you know, what are people in the audience said, well, what are, what are some of the secrets to their longevity, to their, to their health? And, you know, I, I told them it certainly wasn't diet because when we were in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, you know, we were eating like we were in Baton Rouge, Louisiana with the Tigerettes who were in their 60s and 70s, but still playing basketball like WNBA players. And, um, 
you know, fried alligator this and that. Um, the 100-year-old tennis player, Roger, you know, the first meal we had with him, he probably put down about three gin and tonics uh, before <laughs> he went into his lobster with extra butter. Um, you know, but, but what cl- cl- quickly became, I think, clear to me was that it wasn't about those cliche tricks to, to cheating death. It's not, you know, what you eat or drink or you sl- how you sleep and that sort of thing. It was about those, about looking forward to something in life. And like you said, putting, having goals that you want to achieve. I think what, and these are words from the seniors themselves that we filmed with, you know, they, they said, they would say, you know, if your life is behind you, you're, you don't have much to live for. But if you are looking forward to things ahead, then you're going to live a vibrant life no matter what your age. So um, obviously there's an asterisk, asterisk there, you can, you know, with health issues and that sort of thing. It's, you know, but I think genetics does play a part for sure. But, you know, I think that attitude means a lot. And, and you know, and having loving family around you and social network, and that's really important too. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. And, and you're right. I mean, it's, you know, health and other things play factors for sure, um, all sorts of genetics and everything. But, you know, I've observed a lot of uh, uh, seniors in, uh, in, in my life that are, I mean, some guys that are 85, 90 years old, and they're still going to the office like they've got another 30 years to go, and, and they're putting together 20-year plans. And, uh, and so you, uh, I, think, I think some of those people, they're just driven, and they don't, they don't stop. And, and many are entrepreneurial uh, in, in their own, uh, life. But this is kind of cool with the, the, the athletic, uh, portion of these, these guys and gals lives. And, uh, I'm looking forward to watching that film. It just, the clip looked really a lot of fun. Um, well, um, and then I know you have the America lost film coming out, which you mentioned, um, and you're still filming that you're heading to Memphis, uh, this week. Yes. Uh, we're heading out to Memphis. We're, um, still very much in the production stage for, this feature documentary and it, and it's been very different than our other films and you know it's not bringing us halfway around the world or you know um, filming with these amazing senior athletes and you know but but it's it's been an incredible experience in its own way I think America Lost um, really has opened my eyes to um, you know what are I think some of the the most fundamental challenges that our country faces, um, you know, when it comes to opportunity and, and closing the gaps that exist in America. And, you know, we hear about it all the time about the inequality gap or the, you know, um, economic inequality or upward mobility and that, you know, and I, I think, I think a lot of those words are just words to so many people, but you know, what we're trying to do with this film is kind of show what it means to have, um, to be, you know, living in a really difficult situation and then, but wanting more for your children and, and how difficult it is to accomplish that. And so I, I think what we, what we, our approach for all of our films and this one in particular is to approach all of the subjects that we film with in our, in our projects with respect and, um, and to let them tell their story. And, um, I mean, that's the beauty and the challenge of documentary is that you can't script it. You can't, um, you know, uh, construct the best story arc or the best character that fits exactly what you want. You're cap- you're capturing real life, and um, so we're going to go to Memphis for a week and and um, hook up with some families that we've been working with for about the last year and a half, and um, and hopefully come back with some some good stories. So you mentioned um, you know letting them tell their stories and and the different challenges that you have as a documentary filmmaker. Um, when you're looking at these films, um, I'm assuming some of these, what's your average film length? About an hour and a half, two hours? 
Oh no, we we like to stay between seventy and ninety minutes. Um, okay. I don't I don't like watching a film that's much longer than ninety minutes, let alone make one. I'm with you. These days, I just can't stay awake that long. Um, <laughs> I, I get my raisinets and I start falling asleep. But uh, uh, what what the um, so how many hours of footage would you film that you then have to cut down to seventy to ninety minutes? You know, I, I've heard heard horror stories about filmmakers shooting up to a thousand hours to make a 90 minute documentary. Um, we've been, we're a bit more precise. Um, and, uh, you know, right now for America lost, we're, we're at about 250 hours, 260 hours, and we'll probably get to 300 easily get to 300. We'll probably get to 320, 330. We'll cut that down to 90 minutes. So a lot of stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. It's hard. And sometimes you know, it's easy to cut stuff you, that's no good, you know, but uh, shaky shots or boring interviews. But there's a lot of good stuff that you end up having to, to, to cut as well. And so it becomes difficult. And it becomes difficult, too, when you follow someone's story. They open up, they open up their lives to you and, you know, they, they allow you in. But then you end up, for whatever reason, doesn't work out and you have to leave their whole story on the cutting room floor. And that, that's, that's a difficult thing. That's a tough phone call to make. But, um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're still, we're collecting right now. Great. Well, um, and I know, so you and Chris are running this, uh, organization, um, and, uh, you know, it's a nonprofit. So, um, what part of, I mean, are you, you, you guys have to raise money then, right? Or, or, or how do you, how do you, um, kind of expense your films and, and really just your livelihood? So each film has followed kind of a different, uh, it's all the same model, but but we've followed kind of a different approach to funding um, our different our, our different projects. So um, our last two films a bit more similar than our first two. Our second, our first film we just funded, and it was just us going on an adventure. Um, we we did make some money on the back end, which made us realize, wait, we could do this as a sustainable career. And then um, our second film was actually funded primarily through PBS. We, had, we did have an investor kind of get us started, and then we had uh, PBS come through with a large grant to finish. And then um, our last film, Age of Champions, that one was funded um, primarily through corporate contributions. Um, uh, our film being about the Senior Olympics and that inspiring story of, of, of um, you know, longevity and, and, and health. Um, it really resonated with um, some healthcare companies like um, Aetna, um, resonated with companies like Rite Aid, pharmacy companies like Rite Aid, and other health-related companies. AARP was a sponsor. And then with this film, um, where our funding has come primarily through other foundations that believe in the message of our film and, um, and kind of the thesis. And uh, I, I heard a funny thing recently that um, documentary is just French for fundraising. And, um, and it feels that way sometimes where our time is split almost 50-50 between raising funds and then, and then making, making the film. And, you know, um, does that, you know, I don't know if critics would ever come at you and say this, but I'll just raise the question. Um, when you get funding, whether it be from PBS, which I assume is kind of like government subsidized funding um, or maybe some mix of corporate funding, and then you've got corporate funding and now private foundation funding, um, do you uh, do you ever get critics that might say any of that kind of funding stream might compromise um, your film or what you're going to talk about in the film? Yeah, you know that, that that's a very fair question, and 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 you know I think um, you know the audience needs to take that into account. How you know just like with 
are politicians, you want to see where the money's coming from. And just like with the media that we consume, you want to know where the money's coming from. Um, we've been lucky in that, that we've worked with a, a wide swath of, of funders and supporters. And um, I never felt like our creative um, approach to storytelling has been infringed on. Um, and I know Chris feels the same way. Um, probably the most challenging funder we've had was PBS because it is partially government funded. There were a lot of strings attached, a lot of reporting. And I'll tell you this, um, I love our friends at PBS. They've been a great partner of ours, but we were not going to accept any money from them again. Um, and, um, but with our other partners, you know, I, I feel like the important thing is to find uh, foundations, corporations, even individuals that believe in the same, that believe in the story that you're telling. And I think if you can do that, if you can achieve that, then I think everything else will be easier and you won't have that, that conflict that you're alluding to. And, um, and we've been lucky enough to avoid it. So, um, obviously it sounds to me like, you know, you really want to be right deep into the films. You sound like you, uh, are really, um, that's kind of probably what drives you. It's probably, it's Probably what started started you off in uh, doing doing the first film in Mongolia, just taking that camera and going and shooting and cutting and editing. What? Um, but as running the, you know, now you're, you're you're running an organization. There's a lot of responsibilities uh, in addition to the actual filming and editing and producing. What? Uh, where do you divide your time uh, between fundraising, marketing, um, filmmaking? You know, producing everything. How, where do you divide? How do you divide your time? Well, you know, I think besides, uh, you know, in addition to dividing my personal time, Chris and I, um, you know, we're the nucleus of our organization, so we have to divide and conquer as well. So we have a, we have sort of um, uh, a breakdown in duties that uh, complements our strengths, and we specialize in what and what we're good at. Good at. So um, Chris does more of the editing than I do. Um, he does more of the content creation and writing than I do. Um, I do more of the kind of relationship building and partnership and coalition building. Um, I do the underwriting and the sponsorships. Um, and uh, and we, together we, we, we work hand-in-hand in, hand in, um, in, in the storytelling and kind of putting together the stories and the concepts and the themes. And so I think um, my time, I'd say roughly, I mean, every week is different. I think any small business owner knows that um, a big part of your, the big part, a big piece of the pie in your time, um, if you break it down, is putting out fires. So there's always that, whether it's dealing with taxes or dealing with insurance or dealing with other really fun stuff. Um, so there's, there's that. But when it comes, if I can actually plan my, if, if I were to just break my day down into, um, you know, specific duties and tasks that I need to take care of for our, um, for our projects, um, I, I'd say fundraising and network building, underwriting, I would loop, loop, loop that all in together um, and say that's about half of my time. And then the other half of it is probably spent um, in a combination of creative purposes like um, teaching, um, like with our creative MBA, and then, and then film-related stuff. Well, uh, Keith, I know it, I do fundraising as well for a, a nonprofit public policy organization, and you know, I know one of the key aspects of, of fundraising these days is storytelling, um, you know, letting your donors, telling the stories to your donors about the things you're accomplishing that they like to see accomplished. Um, 
And it sounds like uh, because of this is actually what you do, you, uh, your, your product is storytelling. Uh, does that translate well in your fundraising uh, capacities? You know, I would say that everything that I've done in professionally in life has really contributed to what I deem as, you know, some successes that, that, that we've had um, when it comes to fundraising. I, I actually think often about my first job, which was telemarketing for a carpet cleaning company, Stainmasters Carpet Cleaning. And I remember cold calling and how hard that was and how it, it taught me how to speak on the phone, but it also taught me to, to have <laughs> to have some uh, uh, follow through as well because that was not a fun job at many points. But it ended up being a job that was right for me when I was 16. And um, but then yeah, my work at the Capitol in DC, my work um, you know now as a filmmaker and a storyteller, my work as a teacher, um, teaching storytelling. Um, I feel like they all contribute to who I've become professionally and. Um, yeah, I think the storytelling is a big part of it, but I think there's a lot, there's, there's a lot that goes into being successful at funding a documentary project. And, um, and yeah, I, I think the storytelling is important, you know, but, but also just, there's just so many parts to it. There's so many parts to that success as I'm sure, you know. Yeah. And, you know, it also sounds like, uh, having a business partner that complements your strengths, you know, it sounds like, uh, that's been very fruitful for both of you guys. Yeah, we've been we're really lucky. I mean, the fact that we're we have complementary skills, but then also that we're friends and that we trust each other and that we've we work well together and you know, when we go to Memphis, you know, we'll spend basically every waking moment in each other's presence whether we're filming, whether we're waiting for the next shoot, we're having, you know, all three of our meals together and and it's amazing that after being friends for what 18 years now and uh no is that right yeah wow 18 years and um and spending so much time you know one-on-one -on, -one on the road and filming and that sort of thing that we still haven't run out of bullshit to talk about <laughs> <laughs> no that's great well it sounds like you have a lot of content to talk about and a lot of things that just drive you guys and i'm sure you have similar passions and similar interests i mean that's what took you to mongolia together and other places so that's that's really cool and that you've been able to develop it into a into a business enterprise that you're passionate about. Um, one of the last questions I want to ask you is if there's other young filmmakers out there, I mean, geez, you guys have already accomplished so much by the age of 31. Um, but just in the age of champions theme, you have so much more ahead of you. I can tell. Um, but what would you talk, what would you kind of impart on other people that whether, whatever age they are, they might be 18, they might be 50. Um, that, if they have a similar passion, whether it be filmmaking, maybe you can talk specifically about filmmaking and what they might be interested in doing, or just anything else in their life that they're passionate about. Um, what would you uh, kind of got any uh, parting advice for them? You know, I've got two younger brothers. Uh, we're we're all three years apart, and so being the oldest brother, I've grown accustomed to sharing words of wisdom, whether they're wise or not. Uh, hey, I'm I'm one of uh, three older brothers myself, so one, yeah. one of three uh, uh, boys. So yeah, it's it's you know, and and so uh, you know, when when whether it's for my brothers or for the student, the high school students we taught. Um, about documentary filmmaking or our peers that we talk about documentary distribution and entrepreneurship with. Um, sometimes they're older than me. Sometimes they're my age. Sometimes a little bit younger. Um, you know, the, I, I always say, you know, 
general, I always feel more comfortable giving general life, uh, life advice rather than specific life advice or career advice. And, you know, in general, I just tell people whatever you're doing at that time or at that moment, just do it as best you can. You know, whether you decide to put your all into being a telemarketer for a carpet cleaning company or uh, as a legislative aide um, on the Hill or, you know, as a, as a documentary filmmaker or as a fundraiser for documentaries. Like, you know, we've – in all these different iterations, I've just found that I, I just really try to do my best and try to find how whatever I'm doing, as mundane as it is, I, figure, I try to figure out how it's making me better. And, and that really motivates me to do that as best I can. And, and I think ultimately, you know, I think these all – so many different things happen every day to make us who we are. And, uh, and I, I, I just really think that, um, um, you just really need to push yourself, uh, and no matter what you're doing and, and, and you'll end up, you know, it, it'll work out. And, and I think there's that, there's that quote, I mean, it's attributed to a lot of people, but I, I typically attribute it to Thomas Jefferson and it's, um, you know, he says, uh, the, the harder I work, the more luck I find I have. And, um, and, and, I, and, I, and I really truly believe that. So I'm not sure if I believe in luck, but I do believe that if you're, if you're working hard and you're, pushing, um, and you're pushing hard, you'll eventually be pushing forward. Well, I think that's great advice because I think one piece of advice a lot of people always seem to say, it's a little cliche these days, is, you know, whatever you're doing, um, enjoy what you're doing or, you know, do something you enjoy or something like that. But you can't always do something you enjoy. And so I think uh, your advice about doing the best you can at whatever you're doing at that time is great because, like you said, those telemarketing jobs you had, hey, I've had some of those and uh, other things. They're not the most uh, – um, you know, for some people, they love that stuff, but, um, they're not the most, uh, enjoyable for most people. And yet you can develop skills in whatever you're doing. And I think that's a uh, great advice that kind of leads you to the next step and who knows where you'll, you'll end up, uh, doing in the future. But, uh, I'm real excited about what you're doing now. And, um, I'm actually very excited to, uh, to get off this podcast so I can start watching some of these films. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, I think they're just, they look really great and inspiring and unique and, um, uh, the stories that you're finding um, uh, are cool. And so for, for people who want to um, watch these films, um, I suppose they can go to your website, documentaryfoundation.org. Um, is there anywhere else they can find these films? Um, you know, that's a great place to start. But for all of your listeners, um, you know, I would say we actually have a secret page where you can actually stream all three of our prior films. It's documentaryfoundation.org slash screeners, plural. And you can actually stream all three. Well, thank you for giving that special to listeners of the Agents of Innovation podcast, uh, Keith. We really appreciate it. And uh, um, really excited to see um, what you're doing. And, you know, for those that are listening, if you can't tell already, Keith is one of those people that you just, like, right when you meet him, like, you just find him very interesting and intriguing. And um, even if he doesn't go to a Slash concert with you. But uh, it's uh, I, I'm excited to see what you and Chris are doing in the future. And um and uh, these films look really great. So I encourage everyone to check them out. And, and I want to thank you for spending your time uh, uh, with us on the uh, Agents of Innovation podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Francisco. And uh, it, was, it was a pleasure meeting you in person. I look forward to meeting up again in Tallahassee. We'll have to go on an adventure. Yeah, you know, from, uh, from one state capital to the next, right? Sacramento to Tallahassee. I'm willing to show you that uh, Florida's got really what, what you want. So uh, <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks, Keith. And uh, hope you uh, uh, good luck in Memphis and, and beyond. 
Thanks so much, Francisco. We'll be in touch. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, it's an awful lot like crazy The way you shake me with a kiss well, And no matter my intention You always make some time for it And though we live in Carolina We're in a different Say